And if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to First, uh, First Kings chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 10 today. So 1 Kings chapter 11 says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and, who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned, him away, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Well, let's uh, transport for a moment back to 1999. And I feel really old because some of the people who were just on the stage weren't born then. But think back to 1999, and what was the number one television show on, on TV, 1999? Seinfeld, that's close. No, it was actually Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Uh, I remember back then, it was like that was the show to watch. It was so exciting. And it wasn't just that it was kind of a clever trivia show, but it was the fact that by answering just a few questions, a person's life could be transformed and become a millionaire. So there was a show back, uh, it was a 10-year anniversary show, I think it was 2010, and there was this individual who was doing really well on the show, and he had answered many questions correctly. He had actually uh, won $500,000, half a million dollars, and so he's going into the million-dollar question, and he still has a lifeline left. He still had the Ask the Audience lifeline left, and so he has a choice. Is he going to take the $500,000 and run, or is he going to answer the question? And if he answers the question incorrectly, then he only gets $25,000. So he decides he's going to answer the question, and he, he gets the question. He has not really a clear idea of the answer. He polls the audience, and he goes with the, the, the uh, um, answer that the audience chose the most, and it was wrong. And he ended up losing an incredible amount of money. And I, I watched the clip this week, and uh, you can just see his whole demeanor just changes as he lost that $500,000 and only walked away with $25,000. You think about that. It's like one question had the potential to transform his life. And I think the same thing is true for us as well. There's one question that will kind of determine the trajectory of our lives and maybe even our eternity. 
And that's the question, do you love Jesus? You love Jesus. Now, it's a question that may seem simple. It may seem even foolish to ask a question like that. You may say, I'm a Christian. Of course I love Jesus. No doubt about it. You know, we're in church. I wouldn't come to church if I didn't love Jesus. It's not as simple as it first appears. And so we're going to look at Solomon's story a little bit. And so I'd like to kind of, in the back of our mind, as we look at Solomon's story, I'd like to kind of think about the, the kind of the academic question of like, what does it look like to love God or to love Christ? And then secondly, the more personal question, do I love Christ? So let's jump into Solomon's story. Now remember what happens in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 3. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. It says he loved the Lord. There was a sense in which he had an affection for the Lord, and he kept some of the Lord's commands. And yet we get to chapter 11 here, and much time has passed, and we see that he turns away from the Lord. He's walked away from God. He's followed after false gods. And the reason is repeated several times in the chapter. In verse 1, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. In verse 2, speaking of these, uh, these foreign women, the text tells us that Solomon clung to these in love. And so it's, the text tells us back in chapter 3, there was a sense in which he loved Jesus, but his heart was kind of divided. And it says in chapter 11 that his choices led him away from the Lord. Verse 4 says this, For when the S S Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So what's happening here is Solomon is clinging to his foreign wives and going into idolatry, and his apostasy, his fact of, act of walking away from the Lord, I think shows us a couple things. The first thing it shows us is that divided love is not true love. Divided love is not true love. The, the throne of the human heart only has room for one person or one thing. It's either Christ or something or someone else. Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. He said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In Solomon's case, it was you cannot serve both God and these foreign women. For you and I, it's you cannot serve both God and fill in the blank. We each maybe have something that tugs at our heart. So we can say we love Jesus, but it's not simply what we say, but who's calling the shots? Who's on the throne of our lives? What moves our affections? Who's directing our hearts? Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. He says, imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a, chalk, a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. 
That kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee, give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I'm your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It's also subtracting idols. See, what happened in Solomon's case is there was a sense in which he loved the Lord, but it was, he was just kind of one of many things that he loved. He loved the Lord, but he loved these foreign women more. God wasn't the one calling the shots. Look what Jesus says again in Luke chapter 6. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by his own, its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then he says something insightful here. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That's what, where Solomon is. There's a sense in which he said he loved God, but his actions didn't back it up. See, anyone or anything can take the throne of our lives. And there's many different ways that our hearts can be divided. In Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives a parable, a parable of the soils or seeds. And in that parable, he talks about a few different ways that our hearts can be divided. We won't look at all of uh, the different soils, but two of them that are, are applicable for today is uh, the one soil where seed falls upon a rock. It starts to sprout, but then it doesn't have any roots, so it withers away. And uh, Jesus talks about these people as being divided by trials. Uh, there's a way that we can be divided by trials. You know, maybe we come to church and we sing praises, or maybe we go to a Christian conference, maybe we do some religious things, but then when a trial comes, when we face difficulty, then we kind of check out of our faith, and we kind of leave. And really what that indicates is that what we're following is not Christ, what we're loving is not Christ, what we really love is our own comfort, our own security. See, sometimes when we come to Christ, we think if we do the right things, if we're religious, if we go to church, if we give, if we do the spiritual disciplines, then we'll have a comfortable life, that God will take care of us. We won't have to worry about anything. And then when we face difficulty, we're like, why am I doing this? And why am I coming to church? Why am I following after Christ if my life isn't going to be comfortable? And what that, real, that indicates is we love our comfort. We don't love Christ. So we can be divided by trials. We can also be divided by gifts. The other uh, soil that he talks about is uh, seed that is falling upon thorny soil. And the seed starts to sprout up and then the thorns come and choke out the, uh, the seed, the plant. Jesus talks about these things as being uh, the cares and riches and pleasures of life. The pleasures of life can choke out the things of God. And what we have the tendency to do is take the gifts of God and make them into kind of ultimate things, to kind of subvert that relationship that the gifts that God gives us, the blessings he gives us, we tend to be devoted to those things rather than to Christ. And you, you think about it, it's such a tragic story with Solomon because 
I mean, he had more than any of us, any of us will ever have, more than anybody else in the universe uh, that was ever created ever had. I mean, he was the wisest person to ever live. You can read in chapter 10, and the amount of wealth that he had is just ridiculous. I mean, he had everything that he could ever want, and yet that didn't keep him from forsaking the Lord. I mean, you would think it would. You would think that after God had given him all those blessings, all that wisdom, you'd think that would keep him from turning away from the Lord, but it doesn't. And oftentimes, sadly, it doesn't. Oftentimes, the gifts that are given to us sometimes can not only not help us spiritually, but they can even be a hindrance to us spiritually. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 24. He said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So this year was the first year that uh, my son really got excited about Christmas and about his birthday. I mean, last year he was only one years old. And so, you know, we brought him presents and he wasn't really that interested in them. He was just, he kind of would open them, but didn't really care about them. This year, we gave him presents, and he's just gung-ho about it. He's just excited. He wants to open all the presents. And the thing that was a little bit disappointing as a parent is, you know, you try to get him presents that he'll, he'll like because, you know, you love him so much. And, you know, you get to his birthday or Christmas, and he has all these presents, and then he starts to open them, and then you just kind of become invisible. I mean, it's all about the toys. It's all about the things, you know, and you just kind of disappear. And, of course, that's the nature of children. They just get focused on the toys when they're there. But I think the same thing can happen to us as well. Sometimes people who are given a lot, sometimes they get preoccupied with the stuff, and they forget who gave them it. Preoccupied with the gifts rather than the giver. And so we see in this passage that divided love is not True love. And Solomon's heart is divided. Uh, think about it this way. Imagine a man marries this woman, and he is, a, in, in many senses, a good husband. Takes care of her, provides for the family, helps with things around the house, helps cook meals, does everything that he can to make his life, wife's life easier. But a few times a week, he goes out to the local bar and meets up with other women. Now, it would be hard to argue that this man truly loves his wife. He might care for her in a certain sense. He might like being with her in a certain sense. But he doesn't care enough to be her one and only. And I think the same thing is true for our heart. when our hearts are divided. It shows that we don't truly love Jesus. We might be interested in religious things. We might uh, have a sense in which we want to follow Christ, but... Christ is not on the throne of our hearts and shows we don't truly love him. Mark 12, 30, Jesus describes what true love for Christ looks like. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what it looks like to love Christ, that he's on the center, he's on the throne of our hearts. That's what it looks like to love Christ and so Solomon's life shows us an example of a divided love, divided love that's not true love. But also Solomon's life shows us something else. It kind of provides us with a warning 
and also potentially an encouragement. This life provides us a, a warning that disobedience can take us to places we could never imagine. You think about Solomon at the beginning, chapter 3, kind of at the beginning of his reign. I mean, we don't know what exactly he was thinking. We're not always told everything we might like to know in the scriptures. But I imagine if you would have asked him, what is your life going to look like, you know, 30 years from now? I don't think he would ever imagine turning away from the Lord. I don't think that would have been on his radar. I don't think he intended on doing that. But way back in chapter 3, even though he wants to follow after the Lord, we see some compromise. We see even in chapter 3 that first he married the wife of Pharaoh. Now again, in the Old Testament, there was uh, many prescriptions against marrying foreign women. And the reason, it was not an ethnic thing, it was a religious thing. Because when, uh, people, when the people of Israel mar- intermarried with other nations, they would often take on their gods. And that's exactly what Solomon does here. So Sarsar is small. He first, he marries into uh, the family of Pharaoh. And it was probably just, you know, a political thing. It says in chapter 3, it was kind of a political alliance. Probably thought to himself, it's not a big deal. I mean, I know God says that. I shouldn't do that. But, you know, I'm faithful to him. I'm going to be faithful to him. And I just want this alliance. It's not a big deal. And it probably progressed a little bit farther. Probably thought to himself, well, yeah, my wife's follow after other gods, but I'm going to follow the true God. Maybe, then it got a little bit further. Maybe he was like, well, all right, I'm going to build these high places. I'm going to build these places of worship. And I'm going to acknowledge that there's these other gods too. But I'm, not, I'm going to follow the true God as well. I mean, it's okay that there's other gods. I'm going to, still going to worship the true God as well. He'll be one of many. And I, I think he's the best. And you see the road of compromise that he takes where it gets to a point where he's basically just walking away from the Lord. And I think, you know, we see people, you know, whether it's on the news or people in our lives that fall into this, you know, great scandal. So, you know, uh, know, a pastor that, you know, does something terrible or a politician or um, just maybe an individual that you know that falls into some great sin, whether it's, you know, adultery or whether it's, you know, something criminal, murder or rape or whatever the case may be. And we think about these things. And, you know, if you're like me, maybe you've asked the question, like, how could someone do something like that? How could someone do something like that? And I think when we ask that question, we're not really asking the question. It's just kind of we're bewildered. But I think there's an easy answer to how they could do something like that, whatever the case may be. You can do something like that by starting small. You do something like that by a little compromise that leads to a greater compromise that leads to a greater compromise. As an example, nearly all people who went on to become serial killers started with an addiction to pornography. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that everyone who views pornography will become a serial killer, but it's an evidence that often sin leads down a path. And oftentimes, you know, maybe it starts with something small and leads to something bigger, that leads to something bigger, that leads to something bigger. And then we get to a place where we're like, how did I do this? How did I get here? In his book, uh, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar puts it this way. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay. 
and cost you more than you're willing to pay. There's a man who decided he was going to do something very brave. He was going to walk all the way from New York City to San Francisco. And they asked him afterwards, what was the most difficult part of your journey? And they expected that he would say, well, it was difficult to get over these mountains. Or it was difficult, you know, in the heat. It was difficult with the weather. But he didn't say any of those things. He said the thing that almost got him to quit was when sand got into his shoes. Something so small, but it grated against his feet and almost caused him to fail. Small things lead to big things. Randy Alcorn puts it this way, immorality is the cumulative product of small indulgences and minuscule compromises, the immediate consequences of which are at the time indiscernible. I think one of the lies that Satan tries to get us to believe is that the little things don't matter. He tries to get us to believe that the little things don't matter. I think he started back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's a tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes up to Adam and Eve and is basically like, it's not a big deal. It's just a piece of fruit. It looks good. It's going to make you wise. I mean, why wouldn't you eat it? It's just a small little thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact your relationship with God. And I think Satan tries to do that. He tries to get us to separate morality from spirituality. He tries to, to get us to believe that the little things we do are not all that significant for a relationship with God. He tries to get us to believe, like, how does my sexuality impact my relationship with God? He tries to get us to believe that how we handle our money doesn't impact our relationship with God. He tries to get us to believe that how we interact with our spouse doesn't affect our relationship with God. He tries to get us to believe how we treat the poor doesn't impact our relationship with God. See, what Satan wants us to do is he wants us to believe in compartments. It's like here's your moral self and here's your spiritual self. Here's what you do from Monday to Saturday, and here's the you for Sunday. He tries to get us to believe that those little things don't matter, that they're not important for our relationship with God, that we can kind of love Jesus and then just kind of live the way that we want. That's not truly loving Christ. You think about the Scriptures, and you think about the laws and the, the admonitions that are given in Scripture. And by and large, when those laws are given, they're primarily relational. You know, we think back on the Ten Commandments, and we think of those things as just kind of a list of rules. You know, like you have laws today in our government. They're just a list of laws. But they're much more than that. They're rules for relationship. See, God entered into a covenant with Israel in the book of Exodus, that he was going to be their God, and the Ten Commandments and the other rules and regulations were given as kind of ground rules for that relationship. They weren't just arbitrary rules that God gave. They were ground rules for that relationship. It's, this is how you live in relationship with me. This is how you live a life that's pleasing to me. And you see that in the Ten Commandments. That's why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees and religious leaders because they feel like the only thing that matters is the letter of the law. It's all about keeping the letter of the law. And Jesus comes and he says, it's not about the letter of the law. It's not just about keeping a rule. It's about a relationship. That's what it always was about. 
It's the ground rules for relationships. And that's why it explains why there are certain circumstances in the New Testament, specifically with regard to eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and some other things, where it's not about the letter of the law, it's about an individual's heart. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. It says, For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, I always had trouble with that verse. Because I wanted a rule. It's like, is it wrong or is it not wrong? I wanted it to be black and white. And the reason that I wanted it to be black and white is because I saw it as just a rule. Just kind of an arbitrary thing that what God says, you just do what God says. Of course, there's an aspect that we should do what God says. But it's most importantly about a relationship with Him. Let's say I do something that I know is going to really make my wife upset. And I do that knowing full well that I'll make her upset. However, I, after I do that thing, she isn't upset. Doesn't even seem to notice, doesn't even seem to care. See, that doesn't make my action any less wrong. I still was doing something that I thought displeased her, even if it actually didn't displease her. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. It's not just about the letter of the law. It's about our hearts. And so this passage provides us with a warning for those of us who are believers that when we start to get down that path of sin, that we need to be careful that we repent quickly. Now, we all fall into sin, but hopefully we, you know, repent before we get too far down that spiral because, you know, even if we're believers, sometimes you get far down that spiral, it's hard to get back out. For others, it may be a warning that maybe if we're far down in that spiral of sin, maybe it shows that we don't actually love Christ. Because if we love someone, we'll do what pleases them, and certainly... We'll all, we all fail, make mistakes, but we do our best to please them. <clears throat> so that's kind of the negative. Disobedience can take us to places we could never imagine. But I think the opposite is also true. Love can also take us to places we could never imagine. If we're truly in love with Christ, there's nothing that's too great to overcome. If we truly love Christ, there's to, no sin that's too great to give up. If we truly love Christ, there's no place that's too far to go. There's a man by the name of Clifford Francis, and he was sitting at his home in southern India when one of his friends asked him if he was going to go to the World Cup. The World Cup that year was being held in uh, Russia, Moscow, Russia. He lived thousands of miles away, and yet he said, yeah, I'm going to go there. Here's the thing, though. He only made $40 a day. He was like a substitute teacher, didn't have much in terms of savings. And he said yes, even though he knew there was no way he could go there, stay there for the amount of time he needed to stay there for the World Cup, and have the money to get there as well. He said yes, he was going to go there. And so he pondered, how could he do it? How could he make it happen? And the only thing that came to mind was that, was that he was going to ride a bicycle there. His friends didn't believe him, but he had made up his mind. He flew an airplane from, uh, to Dubai and then from there to Iran, a ferry to Iran. From there, he had 2,600 miles left where he decided he was going to ride a bicycle 
to get to Moscow for the World Cup. The prize at the end was a chance to see his hero, Lionel Messi, <clears throat> and see the World Cup. And that's a crazy love for soccer that would cause you to ride a bicycle for 2,600 miles. Made him do crazy things, but when we love someone, we'll do crazy things to please them. We love someone, we'll do whatever it takes to do what they want us to do. Love can take us to places we could never imagine. So we see clearly through this episode with Solomon, again, Solomon doesn't truly love God. His heart is divided. And it's a warning that a divided heart is not, a divided love is not true love. And it's also a warning that disobedience can lead us to places we could never imagine. But then the question is, how does God respond? How does God respond to Solomon's disobedience? The text tells us, we didn't read all of chapter 11, but it tells us in the passages uh, at the, towards the end of the chapter that God sent adversaries against Solomon. He sent kings, rulers, to oppose him, to oppose his reign. Solomon was deeply disciplined for his lack of faithfulness, and eventually the kingdom would be taken away from his uh, family, or most of the kingdom. This response was quite understandable. It's right, quite understandable that God would respond this way. Speaking of idols, God says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. God declares himself to be a jealous God. He will not tolerate other lovers. He's justly angry when we choose other gods. And so his response to Solomon is that he stands as an adversary against him to oppose his way. Yet in the midst of these words of judgment, we also see the words of grace. We see that God declares that he's going to discipline him. He's going to take most of the kingdom away from his children. But there's going to be one tribe that remains. There's going to be one tribe that remains. That God is going to keep his promise to David that he would always have a king on his throne. He's going to keep his promise of sending the true, just, perfect king, King Jesus. And there's glimmers of hope in this passage that Jesus would come, the true king, and bring restoration. And see, while God sent kings to fight against Solomon because of his sin, God sent a different king to fight for us because of our sin. For Solomon, God sent kings to fight against him. But he sends us a king to fight for us because of our sin. Send us a king who would come to the earth to pay the ultimate price, the ultimate act of love, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins even though we've gone astray, even though we've all preferred other gods rather than him. He sent his son to die for us, to show once and for all that he loves us, to invite us, come home, come home. I want a relationship with you. The historian Xenophon tells a story about King Cyrus. King Cyrus comes and conquers uh, the Armenian people. And the Armenian prince and his wife are prisoners of war. And so Cyrus comes to this Armenian prince and he says, 
what would you do for me to reinstate you to your throne, to give you back the former glory that you once had? The prince of Armenia went on to say that he didn't value his crown or his liberty all that much. It didn't mean that much to him. He said if the noble conqueror would restore his beloved wife to her former dignity and possessions, he would willingly pay his life for the purchase. He would give his life for his wife to be restored. Now, King Cyrus was a just and merciful king. So he decided he was going to free the prince of Armenia and his wife. He was going to restore them to their former fortunes. The prince of Armenia and all of his officials were overjoyed to be shown this mercy. The prince of Armenia came to his wife and he said this. What did you think of Cyrus? All the, king's offic- all the prince's officials, the prince himself, were overwhelmed by Cyrus's generosity. She said, I did not observe him. The prince responded, not observe him. <clears throat> upon whom then was your attention fixed? She said, upon that dear and generous man who declared his readiness to purchase my liberty at the expense of his life. So we started off looking at that question, what does it look like to love Jesus? We end again with that question, do you love Jesus? That personal question. Let's say the answer is no. Say in your heart of hearts, you say, I don't love Christ. Or maybe you're a Christian and you say, I do love Christ, but I don't love him like I feel that I should. I think the answer is to look to the cross. See, if we don't know, if we don't love Christ, what it shows is we don't really know him very well. If we don't love Christ, it means that we don't really know him very well. Because if we see his grace, if we see his mercy, if we see and experience his love for us as demonstrated on the cross, how could we not love him? How could we not love someone who gave everything for us so that we could experience hope, life, and a home in heaven with him? We don't manufacture love for God. We don't love God on our own. 1 John 4.19 says that we love God because he first loved us. He took the first step. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were following after other gods, While we were doing our own thing, God sent his son to say, I love you. I care about you. I still want you. It's up to us. How are we going to respond to that love? So I'll leave us with that question. Do you love Jesus today? Do you love Jesus like Augustine spoke of the love of Christ? How he spoke of the rescue of Christ. Augustine once said this, Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within, but I outside, seeking there for you and upon the shapely things you have made. I rushed headlong, I misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being, were they not in you? You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, Blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragments 
I gasped and now I pant for you. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace. Do we have that kind of love for Christ? Can we say the words of the psalmist in Psalm 116? I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol had long hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, as we look at your cross, as we look at the gospel that you chose to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins while we were still your enemies, Lord, we can't help but be moved by love for you. Lord, for anyone here who maybe hasn't experienced your love, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in you, that they would experience your love and grace and that would transform them. Lord, as believers, for those of us who are believers, Lord, we know that disobedience can lead us to places that maybe we never believed we could get to. Sometimes when we walk down that road of disobedience, coming back is difficult, with severe consequences. Lord, help us to keep short accounts with you. Help us to return to repent quickly before we get down that road, Lord. Knowing that in your arms we'll find grace and mercy. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Increase our love for you. Help us to be devoted to you in everything that we do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.